Good morning again, everyone. So it's a pretty simple story, really. It's pretty straightforward. This man who had been a, knew about God, knew about the God of Israel, had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's traveling back home. He's reading from the Old Testament. He's reading a prophecy about this Messiah that's to come. Philip had been told by the Spirit to go to where this man was going to be because an opportunity was coming. And so he does. And Philip gets to very simply, from that passage of Scripture, starting from that prophecy that he read, got to explain to this man what had happened with Jesus, got to proclaim to him the good news about Jesus. The man, hearing the truth, having this explained to him, responded with a simple question, well, what's to stop me then from being baptized? So he was. It's a really... Simple story. Over and over in Scripture, over and over through Acts especially, we see story after story after story of conversions, of people coming to know who Jesus is, coming to know the story of what he had done, how he had fulfilled all the promises that God had made to Israel. And when they heard it, They responded in a fairly simple way. When they believed, they came to faith in Jesus and they were baptized. We see this happening on the day of Pentecost after that first great gospel sermon. We see it happening here with Philip and the Ethiopian a little bit later through Acts. We see it in in Paul's conversion. We see it with Cornelius as Peter goes and really has the first Gentile convert to to Christianity. Uh, We see it later on with the the Philippian jailer. And just over, I could keep going on and on of example after example of these conversion stories. And they're so simple and so straightforward in so many ways. I have to admit, sometimes I'm a little frustrated by them (laughs) because they're so simple. People hear the good news about Jesus. They come to understand it and believe it. They accept it. And they move forward into a life with Christ. But we make it so complicated. (laughs) So many times it comes across so much more complicated. And that's true for pretty much anything we get our hands on as the human race. We tend to make things that are so simple, we turn them into something that are so complicated. Now see... For hundreds of years, in the the first century, second, even into the third century of the church, this understanding of baptism and, and what it meant, it was widely understood and agreed upon. They understood that this word, this Greek word, baptizo, it was just, it was a common everyday word. There was nothing special about it. It was just a word that, that meant to, to be immersed into water. They understood that this was an act taken out of faithfulness, that those who had come to faith in Jesus, this is just what you did. It was a step taken by one who was prepared to confess their faith in Jesus and was prepared to live a life of following him that was entering into a life of discipleship. They understood that this was an entrance into the kingdom of God, which brought with it forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, being added to the church, not by man, but by God being made part of Christ's body, being grafted in to God's family tree. They understood 
for centuries that it was so incredibly important, so important that they tried to cover all their bases. You can see in a lot of ancient writings where they try to come up with, you know, what to do on some, some edge cases and special situations to make sure that they can carry out this special act that they understood to be so important. In, in places where we saw um, there were even you know, shortages of water, where there wouldn't be bodies of water to be, you know, to be immersed into. I would say, well, just get as much water together as you can. And they would have people kneel down as far into the water as possible. And then just, you know, usually three different times, just dumping copious amounts of water on top of them just to try and fully immerse them when there was not enough water to be immersed in. We had instances of people of, of sickbed baptism where people couldn't be moved, where they be taken and they would be just drenched with water. I can only imagine the scene. I mean, not that, you know, anything like a modern hospital, this would be taking in, but I can just imagine the, the reactions of some. And they would see someone who, who couldn't even leave their bedside and people were, you know, trucking in water just to try and immerse someone who couldn't be immersed, to be covering them in water. I'm sure it got a, more than a few strange looks. In trying to cover every base... And trying to deal with all the different extenuating circumstances really does show how important this was to the early church. Although unfortunately, the practice of baptism was so important and was so built up to them that sometimes the water overshadowed the purpose a little bit. It did lead some in history to, to some of the you know, extremes that you know, we see fairly early on in, in church history from one extreme of, of delaying baptism. We see example after example in some of the early centuries of church of people who would wait until near the very end of their lives to to be baptized, but forgetting that this was really an act that was the beginning of a life of faithfulness in the kingdom. Or you have on the other extreme where infant baptism became became understood as as a, a common practice. You know, forgetting that it was an act of obedience and faithfulness Two things that really an infant wasn't even capable of, of, of understanding to believing or, or being obedient. Now, I don't want to give, I feel like I've probably already gone too far, but I don't want to give you a full history lesson here. That's not what this lesson is about. As we're moving into this last section of the series where we're talking about the things that we believe as a church, but that we do as individuals. After we've spent so much time talking about the things we do as a church together, we don't really need the full history lesson about baptism. But... We do need to keep in mind that all of these exceptions and extenuating circumstances and different developments over time really started to overshadow that standard practice that was found over and over and over again in Scripture. And so, as so often happens as time passes, you have centuries of fragmentation, different ideas, different beliefs, and of course, where there are differences, there are fights. And I could probably spend a good long time talking about all of the different arguments and disagreements and divisions among the people of God. Because, well, if you don't believe the way that I believe, or if you don't see this the way I see this, well, then there's fights, there's dissension, there's division. And here we are, a couple thousand years after the fact. A couple thousand years after this simple, simple story with Philip and the Ethiopian where he presents to him the good news about Jesus, and the Ethiopian wants to enter in to his kingdom in a simple and understood way. Nowadays, we have, you know, we've fragmented so far that we can have extremes on either side of the equation where some would say, well, baptism 
it doesn't really matter that much. You know, just believe in God, and really the rest is just unimportant detail. And then you have the extreme on the other side of the equation, which would say, well, baptism is the only thing that matters. You know, as long as you're in, as long as you've got your foot in the door, you're set. As long as you're in the system, as long as you're part of the institution of the church, what happens after that really isn't too big a deal. We can easily dismiss baptism, and we can easily build it up into something that it is. I know that when I was a kid, you know, for a long time, I really struggled with, you know, I'd grown up in church, and and I knew all the stories, and I knew the truth about Jesus, but I had built up baptism so high in my own mind that I felt like, well, this was the be-all and end-all. And once I made that step, once I made that commitment, I was signing up for perfection. I was signing up for a life of holiness that I didn't think that I could handle. I looked at all these passages about being holy as God is holy and, and the expectations of living a Christian life, and baptism became this monumental thing. It became this mountain that I just didn't think I was worthy to climb. It took me a long time to realize, oh wait, Scripture also says that when I am in Christ, it's not my power that matters. It's not my ability to be holy that matters. Because if I'm in Christ, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, it's that same power that's at work within me. So maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy of receiving that baptism, entering into that kingdom. But that's okay. Because the power that God will bestow upon me, if I trust him, well, that will be enough. But that's really another lesson for another time. All these centuries of fragmentation, of of differences, of of fights about what this is, what baptism is and what it means, well, you know, the simple answer has really been right in front of us the whole time. Go back to all those examples that I listed and many, many more in Scripture. Go back to the beginning where there was a simple understanding of what it meant to enter in to the kingdom of God. You know, there are a lot of others now asking some interesting questions. I mean, in the history of the Restoration Movement that Churches of Christ are a part of. You know, we made a, took a pretty clear stance on what baptism was and what it meant early on. We went back to the source to see what it meant to enter into the kingdom of God and Scripture, and we've proclaimed that pretty loudly through the years, and we've been frustrated historically and probably gotten into more than a few fights historically with others that were seeing things differently than us. But I find it interesting that recently I've heard some pretty influential, significant voices in other branches of Christendom asking some interesting questions. Hearing one asking, okay, well, this sinner's prayer thing that we've been doing, where is that in Scripture? Where is that in the Bible exactly? Heard another pretty well-respected theologian and teacher saying, okay, well, wait a minute, what was the response to the gospel that those first Christians had? And he says, I can't help but look back at Acts chapter 2, when they asked, when they heard this gospel message, when they heard the truth of Jesus, they said, what should we do? And the answer came, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. I'm hearing people, influential voices outside of our tribe, saying, wow, there's some simple stuff that we may need to take a look at again. 
Now, some have found the simplicity of these ideas in this message refreshing and really opened up some interesting conversations, but there are many that are uncomfortable with these questions. And there are many who have even been offended that these questions would even be asked. They're offended that someone would even suggest that maybe, just maybe, they got something a little bit wrong. Well, baptism, honestly, has been offending people for a pretty long time, to be honest with you. When John the Baptist came with his baptism for repentance... There were some people who had a real problem with this practice. You see, it wasn't uncommon. See, baptism isn't a uniquely Christian thing. It wasn't like a word that we came up with after the resurrection. Baptism was an understood word, was an understood practice, and it was even found in Judaism fairly commonly when someone who was outside of the family tree of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, someone who was outside of that chosen people of God, when they would come to know that this God of Israel, hey, there's something real to this. Maybe I need to be following this God because they believed that this God was real and powerful and was the one true God. When they wanted to become a proselyte, a fairly common practice would be as part of their conversion into Judaism as a Gentile would be that they would be baptized. It would be the symbol of of repentance and this symbol of being made pure and washed and made clean. And so that was an understood practice in that day. But then John comes along saying to fellow Jews, hey, you need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to prepare yourself for the coming king and the coming kingdom. And the religious leaders, they said, okay, baptism for those Gentiles out there, for those outside of our tribe... Okay, that I can appreciate. But for you to say that we, Jews, those, those who can call Abraham their father, we would need to do such a thing? No, that's too much. They were offended that they might have to do something like that. And in a lot of ways, I think we're still offended by it. I think we can still be offended by anyone saying, hey, you need to come to God on his terms. When really deep down, I want things to happen on my terms. I want it to be done the way I think is right, the way I think is best. I was talking with somebody recently, as actually a, a, a teenager at, at, at camp, a couple weeks ago when I was counseling at Senior Week. And again, in one of our discussion groups, like I talked about last week, um, one of the lessons um, in, the, uh, in the Bible class time, um, one of them did hit on the topic of, of salvation and, and baptism. And, and I was talking with one of the guys who you know, isn't part of Churches of Christ and, and has at least a loose connection with another church that his family has gone to sometimes. And I said, yeah, but... You know, this, this is, that's not really what my church, you know, my family's church teaches about this and not the way they do things. And there was a phrase that he used, and I think he really is thinking and he really is questioning and he really is searching for truth, but a phrase that came out of his mouth that I've heard so many times is like, well, isn't this good enough? Isn't, my, isn't my effort in doing this the best I understand? Isn't that good enough? Maybe it is. 
Maybe God is satisfied by all the different forms and ideas that are surrounding, have, been, have surrounded baptism throughout all of Christian history. Hey, maybe there are even lots of ways to enter into the kingdom of God through Jesus that I'm just not aware of. I hope so. I hope that when the end comes, when we see God revealed and Jesus coming in his full glory, I hope that I am amazed. I hope that I am floored by how far the population of God's kingdom exceeds my expectations. For the sake of the world, I really hope so. But the only thing that I can be sure of, and the only thing that I can teach to others, is what he's given us in his word, what God has told us on the matter. The simple yet profound examples of conversion found in the New Testament. But there is one real problem that I have with the question of, but isn't this way good enough? And it's a problem that's really bigger than a disagreement about a practice, about a ritual. Because I think that there is, as much as baptism through history has been an offense to so many, I do think that good enough Christianity must be so offensive to God. Having the bedrock of your faith being, well, isn't this good enough? I have a hard time believing that good enough Christianity is an expression of a heart that's truly pointed toward God. Truly an expression of the kind of love for God that Jesus talks about when he talks about the greatest commandment as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. I don't think that that kind of love for God, that kind of pursuit of God and the things of God is reflected in the idea of, well, I just want to be good enough. I just want to get it close enough. You see, I think that our historic struggles with baptism are really emblematic or maybe even symptomatic of our struggle to really obey and to accept the lordship of another. You see, just enough to get by isn't the nature of true obedience. Now, those of you who are parents, I think, understand this probably better than anyone. Not that my kids would ever do this, would you guys? But they, they would never take something that they've been asked to do by their parents and do just enough to get by and just enough to be able to say on a technicality, well, yeah, I did that thing that you said. I realized that there's probably something else you really intended, a fuller picture of that, but I did just enough to get by. Any parent in this room, if their child does the just enough to get by approach, would you consider them to be an obedient and faithful child? No, in fact, we spend a lot of time and energy and effort getting them to learn that obedience and showing faithfulness to us means more than doing just the bare minimum means more than doing just enough to get by, just enough to feel okay. And so I'm sure as God, our Father, looks at us, His children, how frustrated He must get with us sometimes 
when with this or any other area where he has given us a call to obey, a call to follow, really follow out of love and devotion to him, and we say, well, isn't, isn't this good enough? Isn't this close enough, God? Isn't this sort of at least meeting the letter of the law so I can feel good about what I've done and then move on and get on with the rest of my life? I have a hard time believing he can look at us then as obedient children who truly love him and are truly faithful children of his. Knowing how I see my own children and what I want for them out of my love for them and the love that I love to see reflected back from them as they trust me, as they're faithful to me and to Christy, as they obey understanding that what we want is what's best for them. I can't help but think that that's just the faintest shadow of the way God feels towards us. So this morning... Do you need to obey? Have you been an obedient child of God? You see, there's nothing magical in the water. There's not. But there is something miraculous in a heart that's willing to obey. To truly obey. To say to God, I see who you are. I see what you've done for me. I've seen the love that you've shown for me. And to say, okay, God, I will do anything for you. And he's asked so little. He's only asked for us. God has asked me for so little, only everything that I am. Which in the grand scheme of things really isn't much that I have to offer. I just have this one life out of seven billion or so currently on this planet. And among the billions that have come before... It isn't just the ritual that really matters. It's the life of faithfulness in God's kingdom that he's looking for. And this that we're talking about today, this baptism, this is just the first step of obedience being taken into that life. And there's a, if you'd like to take that step this morning, or if you want to know more about what it takes to make that step, to take what we've made so complicated and just make it simple again, just listening to the call of Jesus, to come to him on his terms. If you'd like to know more about what it means to take that step and then keep taking the many steps to follow, I hope that you let us know. I hope you talk to someone, ask me, ask somebody about what it means to be his follower in that way. You can even come and let us know right now while we stand and while we sing.